0: This is Philip Meyer, welcoming you to another episode of Talking About Platforms. We present and discuss relevant discoveries from the field of platform research.
1: Hi, I'm Daniel Trebuchchi. In every episode, we have a guest sharing with us one of his or her latest papers on platforms to make it accessible for everyone.
0: And with that, let's jump right into the conversation. Welcome to a new episode of Talking About Platforms. Hi, JP.
2: Hi, Philippe and Daniel. Very pleased to be with you today.
0: Hi, and JP. Hi, Philippe. Hi, Daniel. Um, of course, another very exciting guest today that I'm very happy to introduce. Today, uh, we have with us Jean-Philippe Verne. Um, Jean-Philippe, called JP, is a associate professor of strategy at the University College in London's School of Management. NJP examines the uh, evolution of capitalist societies at the intersection of technology and organization. In particular, how socially contested organizations affect the birth and renewal of industries. And recently, especially the... um, emergence and birth of everything around a blockchain and decentralized um, protocols and, and companies and different types of organizations that emerge around these technologies. Um, and I'm super happy that we have a very exciting paper or set of papers that cover these topics and shed light on different um, terms that are, con- people, are that people are confusing in the, in the world of, of, of platforms. And I think that will be a very interesting uh, conversation. But before we jump into um, a paper and the paper discussion, uh, Daniel, how would you start this conversation?
1: Well, I would say usual opening. And, you know, the title of the podcast is pretty straightforward, talking about platforms. And we welcome here people that in different ways talk about platforms. But we well know that the... World platform is full of meanings, and we wonder what's a platform to you, and even more personally, how you entered in the world of platforms. So, what
2: brought you here somehow? So, I am new to the world of platforms uh, in a way, and the way I got into it is actually a bit strange. Um, I was working for a few years on uh, writing a history of. How pirates contribute innovation that spread in capitalist societies and transform capitalist societies, uh, starting with, you know, the old school pirates on their ships and how they influenced the emergence of international trade starting in the 17th century. And when I was researching this particular topic, uh, I, uh, got into, uh, interviewing hackers who had, uh, shaped, uh, the birth of Uh, the internet, um, and shaped the way we use technology to communicate before the emergence of the web. And those were people who were active uh, in the 1980s, in the 1990s, uh, who were specializing in cryptography and reading about them and talking to some of these people, um, I realized that what they were doing at the time, and, and it, was con- it was considered illegal at the time in the United States, uh, had had a profound influence on our society today. So what, were, what they were doing was illegal because at the time in the United States, cryptography was considered a weapon by the government. So when they were sending emails to their uh, fellow hackers who were based in different countries, the email uh, with content about cryptography was considered uh, an illegal export of weapons. So some of them were arrested, ended up in jail. Um, but what I discovered when uh, w- w- when reading about all these part of of the history of the internet, and that was around 2013 that I was doing these readings, is that some of the building blocks around cryptography that were developed uh, by these uh, internet pirates were actually influential for one uh, person or group of persons called Satoshi Nakamoto. We ended up developing Bitcoin using some of these cryptographic tools uh, alongside other technologies, and starting in 2013, 2014, I started researching um, Bitcoin cryptocurrency um, and blockchain technology, um, and it was loosely connected to my background as a as an organizational researcher at first, um, and it took me actually years to put the word platform. On this particular phenomenon, but now in hindsight, uh, it seems very obvious that Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies and and blockchain systems are platforms. Um, but it took me years to get to this obvious uh, framing of the phenomenon, and I think the reason why it took me years to become a platform scholar uh, and realize that all these things that I was researching were actually platforms is the fact that. We're not used to looking at digital platforms uh, that are structured, organized in this way. Typically, when we think about platforms, we think about Facebook.com, we think about Instagram, we think about WhatsApp. They are uh, digital infrastructures that allow connections between multiple parties. But there is always a corporation that owns the infrastructure, that designs the infrastructure, that operates. The infrastructure uh, changes the rules of the infrastructure. So, for instance, Meta is a corporation that owns Facebook.com, Instagram, and WhatsApp. And we always, I think, to make conversations easier, uh, lumped together the corporation, Meta, with the digital platforms that the corporation owns and operates, Facebook.com, Instagram, WhatsApp. But they are not the same thing. And when we start looking at these new types of platforms that involve decentralization technologies, such as Bitcoin or Ethereum, there is no corporation anymore. There is no private corporation that owns the platform. And so that's when it becomes very important to make the distinction between the corporation and the platform itself. Uh, In a lot of conversations, people will just loosely refer to Facebook Meaning at the same time, the company, the corporation, Facebook and Facebook.com, which is only one of the platforms that uh, Facebook, the company, operates. But the two things are quite different. And this difference becomes obvious when we are looking at these new emerging types of platforms whereby there is no corporate owner anymore. And that's how I got into it.
0: And I think also a, a unique perspective coming from the the Bitcoin and uh, decentralized side of things first, and then exploring uh, the platform. I think there there's a long list of, of scholars and practitioners who like now start to explore this uh, like coming from the, I think um uh, Bitcoin mania uh, that that started uh, a few years ago um and exploring like technical opportunities uh, and and uh, decentralization um and as you, Really nicely uh, point out in in the paper that I introduce in a in a second, many platforms of the traditional type claim that they are decentral or have decentral components, and you very nicely describe where this is true or not true, and where there is a a, a gray zone and a necessary differentiation between words decentralization distribution how each of these two mean and what implications each of these two have when they're implemented. The title of the paper is Decentralized versus Distributed Organization, Blockchain, Machine Learning, and the Future of the Digital Platform. It is published in Organization Theory in 2020. And of course, we will, as always, link the paper in the show notes. And with that, JP, um, I invite you to introduce your wonderful work to our listeners.
2: Yeah, thank you. So the 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 idea behind this, this paper was to uh, kind of unpack some of the uh, uh, notions which have become buzzwords uh, to kind of uh, outline a research agenda um, for uh, studying digital platforms in a in a twenty first century. And uh, uh, the idea is, uh, yes, as soon as we talk about digital platforms, we hear claims about being decentralized. And these claims, they they are quite understandable uh, at first sight. Uh, if you think of Twitter, uh, well, Twitter is millions of users who independently create content and post it on twitter.com. So in that sense, content production is decentralized, uh, because every user can do it independently. But um, having dispersion in terms of content production uh, is quite different from being decentralized in general. And I think uh, recent events, since the, uh, the purchase of Twitter by Elon Musk, have just been a great reminder of that, where we see that now there is one person uh, who can um, decide to change the rules of the game for everyone who is involved with the platform. And in that sense, uh, if only one person can change the rules of the game overnight about who gets verified, how, uh, what rules will determine whether an account is banned or authorized, and things like that. If it can all come from one person, it becomes very hard to make a claim that there is a lot of decentralization happening here. And again, uh, I think the confusion uh, comes from not distinguishing between the corporate owners of platforms and the infrastructure itself, the digital platform itself. So, um, I think the, the the notion of decentralization is uh, is a is a bit slippery because it's quite vague and people employ the term to mean very different things. Uh, What's quite interesting is like, uh, you know, I was trying to look into the history of that notion uh, and I have found uh, that uh, there was a political group during the French Revolution that called themselves the Decentralists. Uh, And it seems to be one of the older uses of the term decentralization that i could uh that i could uh trace back the concept to uh, and so it's 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 an old notion uh, that has something to do with uh the dispersion of authority within a di- within a political system um and so it is about authority which is a legitimate exercise of power um and authority can and many different forms and shape. When I was um, studying the old school pirates who were in the 17th century, uh, you know, uh, operating ships independently, um, the way they were organized was decentralized um, uh, by contrast with the way the merchant marine uh, was organized at the time. So uh, the merchant marine were, was organized as part of uh, either uh, uh, an army uh, controlled by a government or a trading corporation uh, that was controlled by shareholders, like the East India companies, the West India companies, etc. cetera. And it was, there was a corporate structure and on board of the ship, there was a managerial structure. So there was a hierarchy. Uh, And what the pirate crews did differently is remove that hierarchy um, and have more democratic consultation systems on board where uh, every pirate, every crew member could vote um, to give an opinion about what should be uh, the crew's next move. And so what that meant is that there was more dispersion of authority. It was not a top-down process anymore, guided by a managerial hierarchy, but it was more of a horizontal consultation process. And so um, if you look at the history of these pirate movements, whether you're looking at them on the high seas or you're looking at the early days of the pirate radio movement or the early days of hackers on the internet, you find this same mode of organizing, which basically always boils down to adding more dispersion to authority, to the way authority is designed and exercised within a system. Um, And so it doesn't really matter at the end of the day whether on Twitter every user can post some content. Uh, This is a very marginal, peripheral phenomenon. What really matters is whether uh, there is access to information for everyone equivalently uh, inside the platform and whether... Uh, people can contribute equally to decision-making within that platform. And these two dimensions, the ability to access information that is relevant and the ability to contribute to decision-making, I think they are fundamental to the notion of authority. And that goes back to uh, fundamental uh, work on organization theory coming from uh, Herb Simon in the 1940s and 50s, Uh, And Simon was really envisioning uh, information processing and decision making as the two fundamental aspects of organizing. So the way I like to frame uh, the discussion around decentralization is by actually almost excluding the world altogether and say, let's talk about authority dispersion and let's look at the various dimensions of authority dispersion that matter uh, within a system, and I think there are two: uh, access to information and the ability to contribute to decision making.
1: That's uh, that's very interesting. You're bringing a discussion uh, on a very you know hot and 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 popular also topic at a completely different level. And uh, one of the things that I found uh, very interesting in your paper is the fact that uh, instead of talking about contributions you talk about predictions which is extremely interesting and talking about these two concepts uh, you take a very clear stance uh, on what the governments may do regarding this kind of organizations and digital platforms in a in a broader sense And I was wondering, would you tell us something more about it? So what do you think about the role of institutions at large in this game between decentralization and different types of organizations? Mm
2: -hmm. So when we look at uh, government and regulatory responses to the emergence of these new uh, uh, types of uh, organizations, we see that there is a lot of uh, prudence, a lot of reticence, even sometimes to make a bold move, a definitive move, because it takes time to understand what's going on, because this is quite new. So if we look at these two dimensions, the first one being uh, formation dispersion, uh, we can call that dimension decentralization if we if we want if if we think it's easier and then on the other end there's this other dimension which is uh decision making dispersion like everybody has a right to vote on decisions for instance that would that would be very dispersed type of decision making we can call that other dimension distribution if we want but but it can help understand the nuance between the two but perhaps just referring to information and decision making dispersion is just clearer for for uh, our audience today, um, we see that there is there is something fundamentally new. Regulators and governments, uh, they focus on understanding particular types of entities. So they will regulate uh, corporations, for instance. That's one entity that they can regulate uh, in various ways through um, competitiveness and market uh, regulators, uh, through securities regulations and things like that. Um, what they are used to seeing uh, when they uh, observe corporations is a clear uh, hierarchy of responsibility whereby there are, um, there are managers uh, who have the authority to make particular kind of decisions. And so when something goes wrong, there is a clear line uh, of accountability that can be identified. And there are people who must respond to questions that society at large may have about the actions of this and that corporation. When we have a broad dispersion of decision-making, meaning we don't really have uh, people, nodes, agents, uh, who are solely responsible for the actions of an entity, it becomes much harder to identify who is accountable. Um, And I think Bitcoin represents the most uh, extreme example of of uh, authority dispersion, because we have for the first time in history an entity that has grown to become global uh, with dozens of millions of uh, users at this point, uh, thousands of people who contribute software code, thousands and thousands of people who contribute uh, computer power, and they're called miners uh, in the case of Bitcoin, but essentially they contribute resources for the platform's infrastructure. These people are located all over the world. They are dispersed geographically. Uh, they, all, uh, they all have a say in different ways about what's going to happen next for the platform. The developers uh, who contribute code, they can uh, contribute new ideas about where the platform uh, should focus its effort. Um, the people who contribute uh, resources, the miners, they get to vote uh, to approve and activate uh, proposals made by the the developers, um, and and so we have this uh, broad dispersion of authority within the platform. Uh, we had seen that in the past, looking at uh, other free and open source software initiatives, we had seen that with Wikipedia, we had seen that with Linux. What is new here, though, is that Bitcoin has a market value. I can, I can actually buy into Bitcoin. I know that Bitcoin is worth $300 billion, $500 billion, $900 billion, depending on you know, the calendar day you're looking at. Uh, and so for the first time in history, that has never happened before, we have a global organization uh, that has broadly dispersed authority and yet has a market value. Before we only had that with online communities such as Linux or Wikipedia, that didn't have a market value. But now we, have a, we, we, we can actually build incentives into the system so as to uh, uh, create a valuation mechanism, much like a traditional corporation, but without having to have managers, without having to have stricto sensu shareholders, Without having to have employees, in fact, Bitcoin does not have employees. And so for regulators, but really for everyone else, this is, you know, this is puzzling. This is mind boggling. We have this massive thing that's worth dozens of billions, and yet no one seems to be in charge on paper. So how do we regulate this? How do we make this fit with our broader project as a society? Um, what is this thing that the 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 an example of? You know, I'm having these these, these conversations with people who, who see in Bitcoin uh, and other similar projects an extreme form of capitalism. But I also talk to people who see in Bitcoin and other projects um, the achievement of a form of communism, because we have now free software created by a community without hierarchies. And it's essentially creating a common good, but yet it has a market value, right? So we we are puzzled when we look at this. And so uh, it takes a lot of time for governments to figure out uh, how they are going to treat, how they are going to handle these uh, innovations. But I think it's important to take a, a minute and pause and and just uh, acknowledge how incredible this thing is to begin with, and how new it is. Uh, looking back at at the history, we've never had that before.
0: I think also it's a, it is super super interesting, especially when you look at how it emerged basically from the from the bottom up and grew to to what it is and what it became right now, and all the like potential that it that it has uh what i am wondering about from the perspective of these big centralized platforms and i said this before you write this in your paper that they claim the the decentralization term um uh for for their own business and describe themselves in part or parts of their business as being decentralized what is so so fascinating from from the centralized platforms perspective um, or what motivates them do you think there is a rational behind putting a decentralized label on themselves or is it just misunderstanding of the term so what do you think is it uh, is there a rational behind this uh, to to position yourself as being decentralized while you're not really decentralized or is it just
2: yeah uh, mixing up different terms I think, I think there is a, there is a, a, a communication strategy behind this. Um, you probably, uh, remember very well, um, when in the golden days of web 2.0, we had every, so take the period between 2008 and 2012. Maybe in 2008, until we realized that what happened with the Arab Spring was not that wonderful after all, uh, when it you know, involved Twitter and and Facebook and, and other platforms. Uh, there was a golden age during which every startup that was building a digital platform based on the social web principles would go on the stage and claim that they were going to disrupt a particular industry. They were going to disrupt uh, groceries delivery. They were going to disrupt the the, the taxi com- the taxi industry. They were going to disrupt this and that industry. Right? Disrupt was disruption was the big buzzword at the time. Um, if you fast forward ten years into the future, and you look at uh, what what the Web three entrepreneurs are claiming today to raise funding they will be claiming not to disrupt an industry, but they will claim that they are decentralizing an industry. They will say, we are decentralizing social media. We are decentralizing uh, grocery delivery. We are decentralizing uh, uh, this and that industry. And um, you have a very similar discourse around those two uh, notions. And in fact, you could just uh, turn a web, a web two pitch into a web three pitch by just changing the word disruption and replacing it with the word decentralization. In fact, uh, in many cases, it's unclear if there's any difference in terms of what entrepreneurs mean when they talk about these two things. So when Uber was saying, uh, we are going to disrupt the taxi uh, companies, what they meant really is we are going to disintermediate uh, the industry, meaning we are going to perform the same service for the end user, but without the intermediary. And the intermediary is the taxi company itself. right? We, we're not going to need those guys anymore. Uh, if you look at people who claim that cryptocurrency is going today to decentralize finance, what do they mean if not, well, we are going to disintermediate finance. We're going to remove the banks, which are the intermediaries. We are going to remove the payment processing companies, Visa, Mastercard, Western Union. These are intermediaries. We're going to remove them thanks to cryptocurrency and blockchain technology, right? So, in in many in- instances, you actually see that decentralization is used as an exact synonym for uh, what Web two entrepreneurs called disruption. So there is definitely a cool factor associated with using those two terms. Those are buzzwords, uh, but they refer to a particular type of business model, which is disintermediation. Let's take an industry, let's identify some intermediaries in that industry that are just taking a cut on every transaction and are maybe not doing a great job, or maybe they are taking too much of a cut. And let's try to remove them or replace them with like a better kind of intermediary or no intermediary at all. Uh, there is uh, a claim behind that. But the way the claim is being interpreted, that's where it can be a uh, bit misleading. A lot of people will interpret claims about decentralizations as power to the users. Uh, the user will be able to access all the information in the system. They will be able to know how things work. They will be able to see the code uh, and they will be able to vote and, and 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 as a community decide on the next steps on where the system should go. Well, no, that's not, how, that's not what's going on. That's you, as a, as a user of Uber, I don't get to decide what is the next policy that the company will implement regarding pricing. Uh, but similarly, um in, as soon as we have a managerial hierarchy in place, the users don't get to decide very much uh, uh, about the next steps that the organization will make. So this is the novelty maybe that Web3 is promising. Some Sometimes uh, the promise is bogus. It's just a PR move, um, particularly when it involves corporations that are structured in a very traditional way. But some, some other times there is actually a promise that, could be credible uh, when the project is structured around um, a decentralization technology such as blockchain that enables the platform to operate without traditional shareholders and without traditional managers. And instead asks every user to be a co-owner of the platform through uh, ownership of digital tokens and to also contribute to decision makings Uh, decision-making about the platform and where it's going to go uh, by saying, you know what, every token gives you one vote. So you can actually use your stake in the platform to tell everyone else on the platform where you would like to go, where you would like the platform to be in the future. And in fact, every user becomes a manager and every user becomes an owner of the platform in that system. And this is where, uh, I think a claim about decentralization can make sense and not just be uh, a cool factor that makes it sound like an exciting project where in fact, maybe there is not nothing too new about it.
1: You know, you're talking about uh, where the, de- the de- where the decision sits in a certain way and the power that is going back to the user. And there's something in, in your paper that got my attention because it's very related to how I entered in the world of platforms. That was studying the role that data play in a, in a platform-based business model. And at a certain point, you mentioned this idea of datacracy. And I was wondering, how do you link this with the kind of discussion you were you were making? So where do you see somehow the edge between uh, the power that is going back or it's going to, maybe not even back, but it's going to the to the users and the power that probably is going to the algorithm or anyhow, to what uh, all the users together create through data.
2: I think uh, this is a fundamental point that you are raising um, and it speaks to the difference between platforms that use uh, machine learning as their core technology versus platforms that use blockchain as their core technology. Um, Platforms that use machine learning as their core technology typically uh, will want all the user data concentrated in one place so that data can be uh, collated, uh, synthesized, analyzed, and used for prediction. Uh, and this ties into a very well-known business model, which is if we can predict some aspect of the behavior of the users, we can sell those predictions to advertisers. And it will allow advertisers to very precisely target uh, users who could become their customers. And this is how we will generate a revenue and this is how we will grow the platform. For that to happen, you want all the data uh, collected in a very systematic way. And it becomes very convenient to have all that data uh, hosted in a somewhat concentrated fashion, uh, because it's more amenable to analysis uh, when it's done in this way. And so you will see this kind of data, this phenomenon of data gravity, which is the more you have data, the more you attract data, and you create this increasingly a bigger core of data from which you can derive increasingly more precise predictions that you can sell at higher prices to advertisers. Um, it's
1: cool this idea of data graph,
2: how you said it, data gravity. Yes, data gravity it, it's a notion that was proposed by a uh, a manager, an IT uh, manager uh, I think in 2010 called macro crowry. so this is not uh, this is not my idea, but I think the term I think is you know you imagine like a black hole getting bigger and bigger as it absorbs matter in the universe. You, you have a bit the same idea um, when you look at digital platforms that are powered by machine mm-hmm. learning mm-hmm. and in a way it provides a metaphor to intuitively understand why we have platform behemoths, why we have, you know, one massive amazon.com, why we have one massive facebook.com, and how, you know, we have this oligopoly of big tech companies that have formed over time, thanks to this data gravity. Uh, On the other hand, uh, we have an opportunity to structure data in a different way by keeping the data close to the user as opposed to putting it all in the same place. Uh, If we keep the data close to the user, uh, if we disperse access to data and access to information, uh, we will not be able maybe to create these very specific precise prediction models. Maybe we will not have uh, predictions to sell to advertisers, but we will have something else. Uh, we will have an ability uh, for uh, users um, to operate in an environment that has more transparency about where the data uh, is located, that will have more transparency about uh, what data is private and what data is public. Um, There will be more opportunities to build upon this mass of data um, in a way that is non-proprietary. Um, And so that implies a very different kind of uh, growth model for these kind of platforms. And maybe the advertising model is not the right model there because it will become uh, slightly inconvenient to sell predictions, maybe even impossible to sell predictions to advertisers if you do not pull all the data together to create those predictions in the first place um but instead you may be able able to create different business models uh and there's a lot of experimentation going on these days uh with these business models whereby um you will uh for instance pay with micro payments using a token uh for service but at a very very low level uh, for uh, as much as you want to use that service in, in some kind of metered connection to a, to a service, which is a model that you see uh, currently being used with the IPFS, which is like a cloud and s- storage uh, system that is heavily decentralized in terms of uh, data and uh, offers an alternative to like Dropbox and other typical traditional uh, uh, cloud storage solutions. Um, And so we have here uh, uh, very different models that are competing, uh, that are centered around very different technologies. Um, And I think uh, there is no clear uh, winning solution. But if we look at, again, this very recent event surrounding Twitter uh, and the takeover by Elon Musk... um, it is, it is really um, fascinating to see the kind of criticism that people have about uh, the first decisions that are made by Elon Musk. Um, seeing also some people encouraging users to uh, resign from Twitter uh, and close their account and move to uh, an alternative. One of them that has been discussed a lot lately is Mastodon. And Mastodon is a free and open source software that is not... Uh, that that is used to create a digital platform. It's not owned by a corporation. And it keeps the data close to the users. So users can create a server, their own server. It's called an instance uh, in, in Mastodon, but really is the same idea as a node in the network. But it's it stays local. The data say, stays locally on that particular uh, node. Uh, and, We have like smaller communities that can uh, vote and design their own rules for their node and the people that will connect to their nodes. And at no point in time is all the data from all the nodes aggregated in one central place. Uh, And so we see this clash between the centralized and the decentralized models uh, across industries. And I think a fantastic example is what's going on between Twitter and Mastodon these days. Fantastic
0: a related topic um, and also something that you that you mentioned and that we talked about before um users becoming managers having more ownership about their their own data and when i look into companies where decision making is not so dispersed uh, and more centrally organized around often very well educated very experienced people who are very good at making decisions and handling the responsibility and understanding the responsibility that comes with these decision making um, you mentioned in in the paper there might be a new rule a new role of of business schools and uh, here my my question to you would be what is the role that universities maybe in general can play in helping to disperse uh, the accessibility for decentralized systems where, users have more responsibility, have more opportunity to act and to decide, but how do they get the necessary knowledge to understand and do that? And what's the role universities can can play
2: here? Yeah, that's, a, that's an ongoing discussion, I think, for everyone involved in training uh, students, whether it is in business schools or, or other types of schools. But business schools are particularly... Uh, uh, in the line of sight here um, for new jobs in new types of organization. So, if we go back to some of the examples we've discussed before, you look at uh, students that are excited today about what's going on in the Ethereum e- ecosystem and they want to be a part of it. Well, Ethereum is um, an organization, uh, a platform, so uh, that has management principles. But does not have managers. Bitcoin is another example. Bitcoin has management, it doesn't have managers. No one is a manager for Bitcoin. There is no position uh, called manager um, whereby uh, a corporation pays an employee to uh, perform certain tasks following pre established goals and objectives. Um, So what does that mean for a business school? Its purpose is to train managers. If we are to have an increasing uh, uh, portion of society that is um, operated uh, with digital platforms that have management principles, but without managers, should the focus of business schools still be exclusively uh, the training of managers? Or should we actually rethink um, the way we design our curriculum and the way we prepare students for uh, making an impact in the world, including outside these traditional positions that are called managerial positions? And I believe that increasingly our duty as business schools, but also our incentive as business schools who want to survive and who want to be successful and grow, is to take into account this new reality And understand that uh, the traditional boundaries of corporations, um, they used to define uh, uh, the the only way to go. Uh, But today, uh, I think over the last few years, business schools have increasingly uh, become aware that students want to work in social enterprises, want to work in uh, NGOs. Uh, And and, and so in, in contexts that are slightly different from the typical, the traditional corporation, but still have a lot in common with traditional corporations. But in the last couple of years, we have seen, and particularly since the pandemic, an increasing amount of students who are excited about building for Web3 and joining protocols, uh, joining projects, joining communities whereby there is no managerial position for them. So how do we train them? What do they need to know to be successful in these environments? and uh this ties back into the broader theme of about the future of work because this is really one of the possible futures uh, of work that is now available for for students graduating these days and which was not available to us uh, ten years ago so it I think it's uh uh it's a massive question to tackle for for business schools today
1: looking up uh, talking about uh massive questions and future oriented thinking. Going towards the closure of this uh, chat together, what do you see in the future of your research? Where are platforms going? What's you made predictions in the paper, but even more than that, uh, what do you see coming? What are you working on?
2: So one of the uh, projects that I'm quite excited about these days is, um, working uh, in collaboration with uh, regulatory agencies and governments uh, to uh, build uh, a framework that will enable decentralized platforms to innovate, to grow, to thrive, uh, and to um, offer uh, competitors an alternative, additional competition, against the traditional centralized platforms including those that have become part of of an oligopoly that uh, regulators across the world now are becoming very suspicious of and so helping with building a framework uh that's that's make uh that make it clear how you can today uh contribute to a protocol and have that be your career uh, develop free software and a revenue model on top of it as part of a digital platform, Um, how to make these things easily understandable from the viewpoint of the law, from the viewpoint of industry regulators, from the viewpoint of tax authorities, I think is fundamental if we want to level the playing field and create uh, um, competition and innovation uh, in a healthy way uh, in, in our societies. So, one, this is obviously a huge uh, a huge uh, project that cannot be uh, tackled uh, in the short term or, or by just one single team of researchers. But I am starting uh, to address a tiny issue as part of this big ocean of, of questions and question marks. And that is um, building, designing a measurement of authority dispersion. So we can compare digital platforms along two dimensions how dispersed information is within them and how dispersed decision-making is within them and the idea is to be able to compare uh, a particular platform with itself over time to see how it's evolving uh, and also compare different digital platforms uh, uh, in a cross-sectional fashion Uh, to help uh, regulators understand how particular uh, regulatory framework may or may not apply depending on the extent of authority dispersion. So there's been discussions, for instance, about whether uh, a, a cryptocurrency token should be considered a security or not in the United States, and so should be subject to securities regulations or not. And there's been uh, discussions about whether the, the decentralization of the platform should matter to this choice. Uh, if you are very, very decentralized, uh, can you cons- be considered a security uh, given that there is not like a clearly identifiable uh, promoter for the investment opportunity? And the answer tentatively has been no, not really. And And that is why certain digital platforms have been Uh, exempted from securities regulation. But to be able to really apply these kind of regulations, we need to be able to measure the extent of authority dispersion. This can also have uh, uh, consequences for regulations surrounding free speech uh, or for regulations surrounding the protection of intellectual property in the digital space, um, because how much authority dispersion there is will impact um some of the uh, uh uh some of the clauses of of, of existing regulation so that's the one project uh, i am i am working on uh and i am doing this with an open mind in the sense that i am not an activist like i do not believe that more authority dispersion is always better um, i think what we will find by continuing to do research in this particular area is that um certain levels of authority dispersion are better than others for achieving particular things. So um, it it may be that there's a trade-off between how fast you can grow and how innovative you can be, and that different levels of decentralization or authority dispersion uh, will be more or less adequate depending on the goal you are trying to optimize for. Um, And so by designing this measurement I, uh, with with a team of researchers, i'm am, I'm am hopeful that we can you know better understand uh, the development of these uh, of these digi- digital platforms that are decentralized uh, and kind of uh, help guide their growth uh, to achieve uh, socially beneficial outcomes. Wonderful.
0: JP, you did a hell of a job making your research uh, accessible. And I can tell you that whenever I read uh, distribution or uh, decentralization from <laughs> now on, I will pull out your framework and ask, uh, how is uh, decision-making or information actually dispersed in in this particular situation? Uh, thank you very well, much that, for that. that, good. For that. <laughs> um, if our listeners want to... Or would like to uh, to connect or to follow your work, your upcoming work that you just teased with us, uh, or also um, re- work that is already published. What is the best way uh, to to connect or
2: follow follow your work? So I have not fully migrated to Mastodon yet. So uh, for people <laughs> who are using Twitter, I would say this is a pretty good place to start. Uh, and happy Pirate Org um, and Otherwise, my uh, webpage on the uh, UCL School of Management website uh, is uh, updated frequently and uh, will contain a lot of information about uh, how my research is progressing. Wonderful. We will definitely link that as well in the
0: show notes. Yeah, and with that, I can only say thank you so much for your time, uh, JP. Uh, thank you for your work and thank you for coming to our podcast and sharing. Your know, are, very are valuable insights with us and with the
2: audience. Well, thank you so much, guys. I, I really appreciate it. this. Was this was really uh this was really fun and um yeah. And I'll keep uh, following your your podcast series. I think you're doing a really really great job. And uh, yeah, I'm very glad we could do this.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Talking About Platforms. To support our work. You can rate the episode or leave a comment on your favorite podcast app.
1: And don't forget to hit the follow button so you don't miss out the coming episodes. If you want to look up at the papers we have discussed or other topics we addressed, visit TalkingAboutPlatforms.com. There you can find the show notes and get in touch with us. Until next time, when we're again
0: talking about platforms.